Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Bernoy, and this is the podcast for therapists where we talk about the things that happen with our clients, the things that we don't get taught along the way towards becoming therapists. And we are returning to a topic that we have not talked about in quite a while. And usually one of the top complaints that I hear from students leaving their grad programs is we don't hear enough about sex. <laughs> and so we are joined today by Dr. Tom Murray. He's a relationship and sex expert, and he's here to bestow upon us some of the wisdom and some of the stuff that comes up with our clients around sex and sexuality sort of things that we just kind of stumble into unless we seek it out. So thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Kurt, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So I know we've only spoken once before, but I consider you a friend. I see all your good stuff on Facebook. So I'm excited to have you here. And I'd love to start you off with the question we ask all our guests, which is who are you and what are you putting out into the world? You know, I'm a work in progress. I think one of the wonderful things about being a therapist is that we are a profession who really has a love affair with development. And so I think I'm still evolving. But over the past five years, I've really concentrated my career after leaving a university counseling center as their director at a local university here in North Carolina, is create this niche practice of working with clients who present with sex and relationship issues with particular love for my fellow weirdos out there, those who are <laughs> bumping up against the edges of society and, and helping them to shed guilt and shame around what are perfectly normal parts of sexual expression. So we usually start the top of our episodes with a question, not not as a shaming question, but as a, if people have already made some mistakes and we can save some other people from making those mistakes. What is it that a lot of therapists get wrong about sex? Not asking the questions initially, you know, right out of the gate in that initial intake is avoiding perhaps only out of their own anxiety about sex and sexuality. When uh, I forget what theorists said that if you can talk about death and sex, you could talk about anything. And mm. so, you know, getting clients to at the very least know that talking about sex and sexuality within the consulting room is uh, absolutely acceptable. So I think the omission is perhaps what therapists may get wrong. It's interesting because I think 
that's usually the answer we get is that people don't talk about sex enough. And it's probably part of the therapist issue, right? Because we just, we're just feeling really nervous about it. But the book you've written, Making Nice with Naughty, is about this over-controlled temperament, which I'm assuming those folks don't really want to talk about sex either. <laughs> so maybe we can dive into something that's a little bit more specific, because I think we'll link to other sex therapy episodes in the show notes. But I want to get specific into this topic, because I feel like it's a really interesting one. That there are folks who are very over-controlled that then don't have fun at having sex, right? Like they don't right. enjoy sex, they aren't having fun. And, and there's also all the other kind of actual disorders that you kind of list in your book description <laughs> that they That's have. Right. So let's jump into that. What is the over-controlled temperament that leads to these sex problems? So, you know, I know that most of the listeners are going to be therapists and this may be old news, but let's just talk about temperament in general. Sure. Temperament is the kind of the stable ways in which we show up in the world, the stable parts of our personality that we show up in the world. And by and large, we we look at temperament as just what is. So introversion, extroversion being one of the most common temperaments, and one is not good or bad. And in the same kind of similar way, there's the over-controlled and then the under-controlled temperament. And the under-controlled is much more out there. You know, they have big emotions and they <laughs> they tend to be more impulsive or they're they're better at taking risks. They're the ones that are able to to go up and do karaoke without having a drink. You know, they're, they're just the <laughs> really lively and vivacious and full of energy, but at the very extreme end of the under-controlled temperament, you have things like borderline personality disorder, ADHD, narcissistic personality disorder. So you have those kinds of disorders at the very maladaptive end. The over-controlled temperament is much more inward. That is, they tend to have self-control, right? And too much self-control as you get further along the continuum, where they're much more rule-oriented versus under-controlled people tend to be much more mood-oriented. And so as you get further and further along on that continuum of the over-controlled, you have disorders such as autism, uh, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, a schizoid personality, paranoid personality disorder at, at the very far end. Of course, most people aren't, don't live down there. We can still lean in that direction. In fact, the literature suggests that most therapists lean in that over-controlled direction. Ooh, that's interesting. Why do you think that is? I think that as therapists, we tend to naturally be introspective, right? And that very much is part of the, the psychology of an over-controlled person. Who am I? Where do I fit in this environment? We tend to be concerned about how other people perceive us, right? Such as we tend to have high emotional inhibition, meaning that we tend to not show much emotion on our face. If someone out there asks us how we're feeling. Our most common F word, our favorite, one of our favorite F words is? Fine. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> and if we're, if we are upset, maybe irritable, our other favorite F word is? Frustrated. Ah. I'm feeling it. frustrated, you know? So I think because of that introspection, it just makes a lot of sense that we would kind of move in that direction. Overcontrolled people also tend to be highly conscientious. So we tend to be concerned about how other people feel. 
I feel like you're setting us up for kind of a third F word that interacts with the over-controlled temper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that one might be. <laughs> well, actually, now that you brought it up, I hadn't really thought about it. But in terms of mindset, mm-hmm. right, there's the fixed and the fatalistic oh. mindset that is common among over-controlled people, right? This kind of fixed mindset of no matter what's happening around me, I have this goal and I'm going to pursue the goal. Or the fatalistic mindset is I'm so overwhelmed by what's happening to me, I'm just going to metaphorically implode in myself and block out all of what's going on around there. And the ultimate goal is to develop a flexible mindset. So there, there you go. There's three more F words. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about the dirty F word, but that's fine. <laughs> I, Kurt's trying to jump in with a question. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this flexible mindset. What does that look like? How do we move people coming from that fixed mindset into maybe having that different perspective and being able to apply that more regularly? So this whole concept of the fixed, fatalistic, and flexible mindset, I wish I could say that is a Tom Murray development, but that comes out of the radically open dialectical behavior therapy model developed by Thomas Lynch. And so that flexible mindset is somewhat of a marriage between the fixed mindset and the fatalistic mindset. So let me go into those just real quickly in a little detail using a metaphor. So imagine the captain of the Titanic and the captain of the Titanic hits the iceberg. Well, that fixed mindset is, well, F it, we're still going to New York. Even though the boat's taking on water and the ship's sinking, all of that's that, I had that goal, I'm going to pursue that goal. The fatalistic mindset would be the captain hitting the iceberg and being overwhelmed by all of the decisions that have to be made and goes to the captain quarters, hurdles down into the corner and just waits it out, right? So impervious to the feedback that's coming in and and just doesn't make any decision. So the flexible mindset is this being open to the feedback. We hit an iceberg, right? And then making decisions based on the current situation. So let's get all women and children and very wealthy men into the lifeboats <laughs> and uh, and you know alter our plans to preserve you know the life of as many people we can. So that 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 integration of the fixed and fatalistic is the flexible mindset based on the information that's coming in. And over-controlled people tend to be resistant to feedback. So we brought you on to talk about sex. How does this, <laughs> how does this apply to sex? Right. So one of the core elements of over-controlled people who have come in with sexual problems is sexual perfectionism. Mm. And there are four types of sexual perfectionism that I talk about, which is I have to be sexually perfect, right? So that might mean I have to have an orgasm every time we have sex, or my partner has to have an orgasm every time, or I have to always have to have an erection every time that I want one, right? And then there's my partner has to be sexually perfect. So my partner has to have an orgasm every time we have sex or some kind of these rules, right? The third one is I think my partner thinks I have to be sexually perfect. So I'm self-conscious about, you know, how are my breasts the right size for my partner? Are my 
Is my penis the right size for my partner? Is my labia, you know, all of that kind of stuff about, am I good enough as a sexual partner? And then the fourth one is, I think society expects me to be sexually perfect, right? So in those ways, if you get rigidly fixed around one of those types of sexual perfectionism, it certainly interferes with your ability to relax and have a good time in the bedroom. And I mean, an orgasm literally is the total loss of control. And that can be a particular challenge for people who are over-controlled is that they fear what it's like to lose control. So what are some of the common problems that are experienced by over-controlled people? Kind of getting more specific. Yeah. So often low sexual desire can be a byproduct of the over-controlled temperament. And what creates this is a variety, it can be a variety of reasons, but underneath it is that rule orientation. So for example, there are four core deficits of the over-controlled temperament. And one of those is low receptivity and openness. So it's avoidance of novel situations, right? Overcontrolled people are the ones that sex becomes very ritualistic, right? I, I euphemistically call it nipple, nipple, pussy sex, right? So you know exactly what's going to happen, <laughs> who's going to do what, when is it going to finish, and it becomes not exciting anymore, right? And so if sex is very predictable, it's not desirable, right? So some people say low sexual desire is a problem, but sometimes it's evidence of good judgment. Ooh, that's an interesting thing to think about. <laughs> right? That, well, it just isn't exciting. Why do I, I, I would rather do X, Y, or Z. In fact, that's a very common experience of over-controlled people is they think about all the other things that they could be doing in that moment because over-controlled people tend to be also very production-oriented. I got to do more, do more, do more, do more. And so that distracts them from the ability to enjoy themselves. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. When you're talking about some of this, I think there's a distinction here that I want to sort out if we can. Sometimes the over-control or the, the need for ritual or predictability comes from a trauma history. Is there an intersection here? Is there a way to, to parse this out? 
The Thomas Lynch research suggests that the over-controlled temperament, as temperaments are in general, is very much a bio-temperament, mm -hmm. that we're born with a temperament. However, our environment, as we know with epigenetics, our environment can certainly turn on or off the expression of genes, and that can, in some cases, intensify temperament if that was a necessary part of surviving childhood. I often say that personality is the sum of our best attempts to survive childhood. Ooh, and, yeah. and so for <laughs> for people who are inclined towards the over-controlled temperament and who experience trauma, they may find that they're driven even more to create predictability right? To avoid conflict, to be very risk averse and threat sensitive, you know, that hypervigilance, that's natural part of the over-controlled temperament, to then to have a traumatic experience to turn up the volume on that. Does it impact how you would treat or support clients if it has that compounding of the over-controlled temperament in the past trauma? Yes, yes. In fact, I have a whole chapter around trauma relative to sex, because that often can be the reason for avoiding sex later. What I typically find is that couples will have had a, what seemed to be a very normal, quote unquote, sexual relationship early on. And then it shifts to a problematic sexual relationship. And one of the explanations for the problems is the traumatic events that preceded the relationship entirely. And what I try to do is work with people to maybe even untangle that narrative, that it may have nothing to do with the early childhood experiences or early life experiences. And that when you wed those two together, it's harder to move beyond and to heal from the trauma, because now the trauma is tied to the current life situation, and it may have nothing to do with it. And so how I work with these individuals is for them to begin to ask themselves questions, and that's part of RODBT is self-inquiry. Who is made right when you continue to have the sexual problem? Well, the abusers made right. Mm. right. You know, the abusers robbed you of this body autonomy. And when we maintain beliefs that were lessons learned from that traumatic experience, they're made right. And so part of the therapy that I do is helping the person reclaim for themselves what I euphemistically call one's divine inheritance, which is to enjoy oneself as a sexual being. That makes sense. Katie says it makes sense. I maybe want to dive a little bit more into that as far as <laughs> I'm imagining a client who's presenting is very over-controlled in that. This seems very, very logical. It seems very, very, you know, almost have the potential to be rule-based about being rule-based into this. So that's right. How do you break through that with those over-controlled clients in being able to allow for some of that more open, under-controlled, passionate sort of encouragement there? Yeah, well, who do they want to be as a sexual being? It's really exploring. Who do they want to be? If they were free of the anxiety 
and fear of uncertainty, which is, by the way, kind of one of the primary fears of over-controlled people is the fear of uncertainty. If I had the magic wand and I can absolutely ensure that they won't have anxiety around uncertainty, how might that shape their sexual style with them and their partner? That might include educating themselves about sex and sexuality. You know, a lot of over-controlled people don't educate themselves about sex and sexuality. Perhaps, for example, that they grew up in the purity movement, right, where sex was really uh, seen as evil or sinful and a gateway to bad things happening. And so if they were free to imagine exploring themselves sexually, what would that look like? That might be, for example, listening to podcasts about sex and sexuality, (laughs) so that they can hear other adults talk about their fantasies, talk about their experiences, right? Most people, when I ask clients, when's the last time you read a nonfiction book about sex? The most common answer is... Never. Never. (laughs) (laughs) I've never read anything. Yet, we're sexual beings 24-7. And what was true about your sexual style when you're in your teens or early 20s is not likely going to be true when you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, right? So we have to continuously update our sexual knowledge, and that often means exposing yourself, you know, figuratively, to uh, new sources (laughs) of information. I want to expand on something that you said just a few minutes ago. And you had sparked a conversation that I had seen online at at one point before, but when people get locked down into these rules and and the effects that it has on their partners, they ask their partners to change and the partners change and the partners then start to realize that the primary partner is now still uninterested. And, And some of this resentment can build up in the back and forth of relationships you know, the very basics of, of doing couples therapy is get couples to talk about it. But when you're talking about unweaving the past and the past before the past that even exists with the couples, this is speaking to a lot more nuance than I think it's just like, okay, get partner A and partner B to talk about their sex lives with this. That's right. How do you help to tease this out, not only for the singular person, but also the couple? Because you know, we see guys in therapy, we see some women too, but it's just kind of like, yeah, I, I want more orgasms. And that's kind of the, <laughs> the end of the sex talk that how do you get to more of this depth and this back and forth understanding when it comes to the relational piece of it? What I'm about to say is controversial. Okay. We'll brace ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Most over-controlled people choose monogamy as the governing institution of their relationship, because it does satisfy the need for predictability. At the same time, monogamy has as its occupational hazard a decrease of desire over the long term. So desire tends to decrease, uh, that lusting after one's partner decreases on average 8% per year, and liking your partner decreases on average 4% per year. When it comes to the sexual desire discrepancy, I often remind couples about the definition of monogamy. In fact, I'll be explicit about it. I'll ask, what is the definition of monogamy? And people will say, well, sex with one person. And I say, yes, that's right. Sex 
with one person. And so if you're not having sex and monogamy is sex with one person, then you don't have monogamy. You have something else. I don't know what that something else is, but it's not monogamy. And so then I explain that monogamy has with it a set of rights and responsibilities. The right is that you have the right to enjoy each other's bodies in ways that other people don't have access to. The responsibility is to be interested in the sexual needs of the other because the option of going down the street has been taken off the table. Now, does that mean that you have to say yes to sex every time your partner wants to have sex? No, because it's precisely the option or the freedom to say no that gives the yes its meaning. If you could only say yes, then the yes wouldn't have any meaning. So in that totality, if people want monogamy, then there is those rights and responsibilities. And I think what often happens is a partner is disinterested in sex and then expects their partner to also not be interested in sex. And I call that forced celibacy. So the low interest desire partner essentially forces their partner into celibacy because there isn't the freedom to go down the street to get their needs met. And so that I, my, my style of, of therapy is what I call carefrontational. <laughs> I am very direct because I'm an advocate for the relationship, right? I'm not an advocate for any individual. As that, I'm speaking on behalf of the relationship and, and clarifying for them what, in fact, are their values. And if they say that monogamy is a, an important value for them, then there are obligations that are tied to pursuing that value. So how do you resolve that, though? Because the folks that I talk to that have low libido, it's really hard to kind of get to that place of, okay, I will engage with my partner. Yes. And some are in ethical non-monogamy relationships. And so there's, you can go down the street if you need to. But, but I think for, for those in monogamous relationships, what is the solution if there, if there is that difference? Sure. One of the first solutions is to normalize the lack of want. So there are three types of desire. There's spontaneous desire, responsive desire, and contextual desire. And in our society, we tend to privilege spontaneous desire because that tends to be the typical male desire. I just think about sex kind of randomly, and then I want to have sex, and I want my partner to also think about sex randomly and also want to have sex. But that's not most Volvo-owning people don't have that experience, right? So they mm -hmm. tend to have much more of a responsive or contextual desire. And so when I uh, share that it's actually less important to have the want, it's more important to ask whether you have the willing. Because for a lot of people, the want comes after. So if they are willing then once they start engaging uh, sexually with their partner, now the want kicks in. But if they bought into this trope that you should feel that you want it, mm -hmm. then you're going to go inside looking for the want and you're like, oh, oh, I don't, it's not there. So I'm not interested when that's generally not going to happen as frequently, particularly within the context of monogamy that I mentioned before. And so liberating people from that expectation that they should experience the want, and instead just simply ask the question, am I willing? 
and they find that they are often willing. And so that idea of, oh, I can actually gift sex to my partner can be revolutionary for people. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. With the different types of desire, can you go into, because spontaneous makes sense and I think responsive makes sense, but can you speak to what contextual? Yeah. So responsive is that kind of, I, you know, when there's a, a stimulus, mm-hmm. then I am will become sexually interested. In fact, that's the kind of desire I have. I don't have people think, oh, you're a sex therapist. You must think about sex all the time. No, I'm much well, you more. Do. That. You do. Just, it just doesn't turn you on. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, <laughs> that's right. But, you know, when my partner starts kissing my neck or puts her hand in my thigh, you know, that's like, oh, okay, that's what we're doing here. Contextual desire is much more nuanced and sensitive to environmental factors, whether between someone's ears or out there. So that if, you know, stress, for example, stress can be a real aphrodisiac for some people and for others, it just absolutely turns off any interest in sex. Uh, A smell of their partner can be a real turn-on or a real turn-off. And so this balance of brakes and accelerators, as Emily Nagoski talks about in her book, Come As You Are, she wonderfully and beautifully lays out these different types of desire that uh, I think, again, can be quite liberating when people are able to, oh, yeah, oh, that makes sense. That's perfect sense. That's who I am. And we've been going along this path thinking that there was only one type of desire, one right type. Right. And so you you can see how that can become an impediment. And so if you know, for example, you have a contextual desire, then it's really a conversation, like Kurt had mentioned, with each other about what are your brakes, what are your accelerators. And if I want to be a good sexual partner, I don't want to do things that make you force your feet on the brakes, such as a common complaint is when the partner passes gas. Right. You know, that's like, slams on the brakes and the other partner's like, well, it's my house. I should be able to do what I want to do, right? Like, that's not really a turn on. (laughs) I imagine that for a lot of clients that come to you in the first place, that coming to a sex therapist is already overcoming some of the barriers of getting to talk about sex in the first place. Obviously, for a lot more of the, the traditional tried and true couples therapists out there, some of the advice is getting people to talk about sex in the first place, getting over your own hangups about it. Everything that you're saying makes sense in the depth that you're talking about it, but it doesn't seem to be as easy as just kind of a switch that, you know, is like couples come in for sessions one, two, and three. Magically, we tell them, start talking about sex, get to know yourself, talk about it with each other. And then session 12, you guys are great. Go have wonderful sex. When, I wish it was that way. I, yeah, I think we all do. I, I, think, <laughs> I think the insurance companies want us to think that too. That, sure. I'm imagining that there's also a lot of normalizing, like this is three steps forward, two steps back, and being able to normalize a lot of that process of exploration of normalizing just the attempts of trying and finding something new and seeing what works as well. Well, there can be a lot of hurt 
that's accumulated over the years if there's been this persistent sexual schism between the couple, right? And so there's the legacy of hurt that has to be worked through before one feels uh, open and available to an enjoyable sexual relationship with their partner. And so a lot of the work has to do with that. I will also add that part of the over-controlled temperament is a tendency towards self-righteousness. And so there could be this rigidity around, I know that this is right, and I just need my partner to understand and agree with me. And, you know, again, that's not sexy either. So you're absolutely right that there are, in the absence of a lot of these other factors, I think people can move pretty quickly. But there is this self-talk that can occur with these clients that, you know, the work for me is, is... I tend to have a orientation toward REBT, rational emotive behavior therapy, to really look at kind of these cognitive ways in which people process their environment that actually are in, in impediments to overcoming their sexual problems. It seems like there's a lot of different specific questions that I would love to ask you. <laughs> related to some of the clients that I have and just the different reasons why they're having a hard time with sex. So I think I have to get the book. But it, it seems to me that there's a, a focus here on the, the over-controlled temperament on how they can get to this place. And it seems like some of it's sexual and some of it, like you're talking about, is more of this mindset stuff. And, and one of the ones that I have commonly seen is, I don't feel sexy, I'm overweight, or, you know, you know, kind of folks that have kind of that, the eating disorders or, or disordered eating that, that, and just kind of a negative self-view. And it seems like there's a potential where it's kind of working in tandem. It's working on, on the, this piece of the, the connection and the relationship with my body and then also with the sex piece. Briefly, because we're running out of time, is there something that you can say about that? And then we'll send them over to your book because I think there's, it sounds like there's a lot to go into here. Well, no, the positive feedback that I've been getting is that while the book has it as its as its focus, sex and sexuality, that people are really able to take away and apply to other areas of their life. You know, we aren't sexual beings in a vacuum. Sure. And so we we live in a society that has a lot of judgments about what is sexy. And if you don't mirror that, you then begin to question your own sexual identity and sexual expressiveness. And so I think you know, my background as a systems therapist, too, really informs me to look at all of those other factors. And yet, there are, in, in any given situation, there are things you have control over and things that you don't have control over. And when we suffer, we're focusing on the things that we don't have control over. And so if I can move that person towards this focus on what they do have control over, then they're more empowered to make the changes that can make a difference. Where can people find out more about you and tell us a little bit more about your book here? Yeah, so people can visit me at drtommurray.com or on Instagram at drtommurray. And now over the past couple of weeks, I've been making little TikToks at uh, Real Dr. Tom Murray. And the book is available on Amazon and everywhere fine books are sold. Uh, <laughs> and so people can grab it uh, at wherever location best fits them. And that book is Making Nice with Naughty. Making Nice with Naughty, an intimacy guide for the rule-following, perfectionist, practical, color-within-the-line types. And we will include links to those in our show notes. You can find those over at mtsgpodcast.com. 
follow us on our social media and let us know how you feel about our episodes and give us any feedback. Join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group. And if you want to continue to support the show in other ways, please consider becoming a patron or supporting us on Buy Me a Coffee. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Tom Murray. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.